everyone welcome to this special edition of the politics 101 podcast this is actually going to be a collaboration between the league of women voters of chicago and good government illinois my name is jane ruby and i'm president of the league of women voters of chicago and uh, i'm more than happy to be doing this podcast with david orr of good government illinois just a little bit of background um, about david He was originally a history teacher turned alderman. He then became vice mayor under Harold Washington and then mayor for a very brief period of time, which we're going to be talking about um, in this episode. Then for many years, he was our Cook County clerk until he retired. And now he runs Good Government Illinois. Um, So we are very excited uh, to be talking with him today and we will go ahead and get started. So first of all, uh, good morning, David. Um, I'm happy to be doing this collaboration with you. I'm really excited to um, kind of get into sort of a lot of the details um, around your time uh, working in with the Harold Washington administration uh, and to learn learn a lot more. And especially it's very timely considering this week is the 36th anniversary of uh, Mayor Washington's passing uh, that we're, we're doing this. So very excited to learn more. Well, thank um, you, Jane. Uh, you know, remember, uh, we, we collaborate because as some people may know, Jane also does a lot of good work for good government Illinois, besides her, her kind of massive responsibilities as, as running legal women voters. So I thank you for that, Jane. And yes, uh, I like many people and uh, you don't have to be as old as me to appreciate this, but around Thanksgiving, we can't help but think a lot about Harold Washington, particularly those of us that work with him or studied him or learned about him and and saw what an um, unusual and talented person he was. So um, it's my pleasure to do this with you. Yeah, uh, I'm really excited to kind of learn more myself. So I guess to, to go back to the beginning of your work with Harold Washington. Um, I think a lot of people sort of know and kind of the history of Harold that you were very close to him and that uh, during your time as alderman, he chose you to be his vice mayor. How did you originally meet Harold and sort of start working with him? Well, one of the funny things about this whole arrangement is I can't remember exactly when I first met Harold, but it was around 75 or 76. Um, and as I was getting more active, because I'd come back to Chicago in 1969 to teach at Mundelein College, and I got active with you know progressive politics, et cetera. And Harold was someone, uh, he was a congressman when I was talking about this time, and he was always someone who was very interested in affordable housing. So I remember I was doing a lot of things with the Rogers Park Tenants Group and the Lakeview Tenants Group and others. And so I had been in conversations with Harold and his staff about housing, affordable housing and tenants' rights issues. But I can't remember the exact time we first met. I do know, and some people may remember this, that Harold actually ran for mayor in 1977. Remember, after old man Daly had died and... 
the Democratic Party would not let Wilson Frost, who was an African-American alderman who seemed to be next in line for mayor. And so instead they picked, um, you know, what's his face from the 11th Ward? How come I'm forgetting his name right now? <laughs> um, and so that that led to something which we'll talk about later that led to a, um, a whole new post in city government that was called vice mayor. But at the time, working with Harold on issues, and I was saying in 1977, uh, I supported Harold in his reelection against Belandic, okay, Michael Belandic, who was um, the nominee for 1977. In fact, my my little condo up on uh, Farwell Avenue in Rogers Park was kind of like the North Side office. Um, but it was a good thing for Harold to do. It got his name out there. He'd always been um, a thorn in many of the traditional Democrat side because he was a progressive minded guy working with the party, which was not an easy thing to do. And they kept trying to discipline in some ways. But Anyway, I, I appreciate that the, the substantive issues that Harold Washington as a congressman was working on. Uh, so it was easy to support him in 77. Uh, and then, of course, came the big election. And so, so you sort of met him in, in the 70s. And then when he finally got elected uh, mayor, he chose you as his vice mayor. How did that sort of process like, where did that process come from, or how were you picked to be his vice well, that, mayor? Well, that's uh, um, kind of a lot of things happened before that. So remember, I'm elected in 1979, the same night as Jane Byrne, uh, as the first kind of independent elected alderman up in the 49th Ward. Um, and we had a very good organization, lots of active people. And so, so I was in the city council for four years under uh, Jane Byrne. Uh, and working basically, in that case, the city council was kind of 45 to 5. And so in 83, Harold comes onto the scene and wins the mayoral. So first first of all, uh, the way that came about, if we want to focus on that for a moment, is I mentioned earlier when Mayor Daly, old man Daly, when he died in 1976, I was saying before that Wilson Frost was denied the nomination. And so part of the compromise after that, because many African-Americans were ticked off that Wilson Frost, again, who was black, couldn't become mayor. Instead, they chose Belandic. And so they wrote a law that said, OK, well, we don't want to have all this chaos, chaos after the mayor dies. So we will in institute a post of vice mayor. OK, and that's that's what happened. Then the first time it was really used, first time, you know, somebody died in office after Mayor Daley was Harold Washington in 87. So we'd been working together in you know, his first administration, 83 to 87. And then, of course, in 87, he was just reelected um, in the spring. And then, unfortunately, he passed away in 87. Uh, one critical thing about the vice mayor thing that was kind of chaotic at the time, because people didn't realize, most people thought, okay, well, the vice mayor will be mayor now until you know, the next election or even a special election, like with lieutenant governor or vice president and so forth. But and I and I don't know this is 100 percent, but I would say it's pretty close to 99 percent that the statute uh, that created the vice mayor post was uh, controlled by Burke and Verdoliak, who were wise in their own way of saying, yes, we'll have a vice mayor. But because they were always interested in their own power, 
they said the vice will serve only until the city council picks a replacement. Now, I knew that because I became vice mayor. So I knew that for a while, whereas the public at large and most of the media did not know that. Um, so that made a big difference. But going back quickly to how that came about, remember, those who don't know about this period, is that the, the first city council meeting, um, Harold Washington did not have the votes. We only had roughly 21 people. Harold tried to um, stall by, you know, declaring the meeting ended. Um, but legally, Verdoliak jumped up from his seat, Eddie Verdoliak, who was the kind of leader of uh, the machine at that time and the opposition to Harold. He ran up to the podium, uh, declared the meeting open, uh, and there weren't votes to stop that. Meanwhile, the 21 of us, Alderman supporting Harold Washington, uh, mostly African-American, um, and at that time, um, you know, very few whites. Um, basically, we walked out of the room. They took over, and that began what became the famous 29-21 split. Uh, Alderman uh, Vidolek and Burke controlled 29 of the aldermen. Harold had allies with just 21. Now, the key to that is that it was a really rough time. We can talk about that later. But what happened in 1986, it made a difference. Because the machine often was fairly racist and traditionally dis discriminatory in many ways, the map that they drew, like every local and state national body has to do every 10 years, uh, to do remapping to deal with you know people moving and et cetera, the map that was uh, prepared for 1980 was ruled a few years later as unconstitutional because discriminatory. So the judge in 1985 said there'll be special elections in a number of wards. And in those special elections, and that's where people like Chuy Garcia and Luis Gutierrez, uh, that's where they come from. Because in the special election, Harold won enough votes in that special election, Harold's side, which meant that now the city council was no longer 29-21. It was now 25-25. And that made a world of difference because previously, Ferdoliak and Burke controlled all the committee chairmen, could all the assignments. Could um, It's kind of like the, the problems that Biden has at times, and we might get into that later, because similarities between the old machine and the modern Republicans uh, have a lot to do with each other. Uh, so the bottom line was things changed then. So with Harold being able to break a tie vote, as long as his 25 stood together, which they did, he was able now to pass things you know, much easier than he could have before. And so that's the way it was until 87 when Harold was reelected. And um, that's, um, that's when I became vice mayor, okay? Uh, when Harold was reelected, uh, and I can't tell you exactly why he did it. Um, I think we had a relationship. I think he trusted me a lot, which was important when you've got a lot of politicians. And there's a little bit of cemetery, you know, black south side individual, white north side individual. But OK, so that that just talks about how it came about kind of legally, one, that there, that Harold gradually gained more power and was able to do more. Uh, and then as a big reelection changed a lot of things. And unfortunately, 
Um, he was a national figure at this time, very, very popular, uh, very charismatic. But unfortunately, he takes office in May of 87 for his second term. And then unfortunately, the day before Thanksgiving in 87, he passed away. That's just such interesting background, David. Um, I didn't really know a lot about the process for how the vice mayor position came about and also the dynamics um, going into sort of voting and who was on what side. Like, we, you know, we see all <laughs> a lot of headlines uh, just in politics in general about, you know, stacking the votes and politics as usual. And it's always really interesting to kind of sort of see how see how history repeats itself. And this is sort of a very common thing. But I think especially during the Harold Washington times, there was so much interesting progressive change that happened during his administration. Can you kind of talk about sort of some some key highlights or some some things you'd love more people to know about that happened during the Washington administration and sort of your involvement? Well, certainly we can. Uh, it's it's easy to say that Harold Washington was the first progressive mayor in Chicago's history. Well, put it like that in modern times. Okay. I don't want to go back to 1833, but in and certainly modern times, because prior to that was Balandic, and then before that was Old Man Daly. Um, so uh, at least since since Old Man Daly became mayor way back in maybe 1955, um, we had not seen, of course, a progressive mayor, and particularly in terms of our modern definition of progressive. And also just to highlight this, to, to do the co comparisons, now we're talking about Harold Washington, who has become a very important figure, um, not just across the U.S. and the Chicago area, but across the world. And meanwhile, let's talk about his his two major rivals. I mentioned Eddie Verdoliak and Eddie Burke, who were the power behind the 29. Verdoliak uh, has been sent to jail. He's out now. Burke is fighting for his career right now with a trial that's going on in Chicago. Um and I, I raise that because the next thing in trying to understand what Harold was trying to do is, again, to re remind everyone that in 1983, there were 29 of 50 aldermen against him. And I said earlier there was some similarities between the, what you might say, the, the MAGA Republicans today and the Democratic machine at the time that Harold faced. They were pretty vicious. And, I'm you know, there were individuals and some of them were good to their families, et cetera. So I'm just saying in terms of the politics, it was vicious, many lies told, uh, good old-fashioned politics, not good, but old-fashioned politics threaten the hell out of you, extreme amount of racism, using race against Harold and every chance they could. Uh, I remember a time, for example, um, I was one of the allies with Harold and a few of us sitting around, I think I was sitting with two or three African-Americans at the time, who were um, elected officials as well. And uh, Dick Mel comes by because Harold appointed me to some appointment. And it was all intentional by Dick Mel, who was a key part of the 29. He'd come up and he'd say to the guys, hey, David, congratulations on uh, on your appointment by the mayor. And look to the other guys. And what did he appoint you to? So the point was, you know, Harold picks this white guy to get this post for something. And uh, Dick Mel, like Burke and Verdoliak, trying to stir up racial antagonism every step of the way. Um, so 
before we go into all the accomplishments, understand how difficult it was. And like I say, they were very similar to today's MAGA Republicans and how they believe if they cause enough chaos in D.C., that that will bring down Biden or any Democrat particularly. And so there's a lot of that going on, a lot of misinformation, uh, a lot of what you'd call viciousness or bringing us to the brink of some failure. Um, so just one example, by the way, of that, because one one of the good things that Harold did was fight for some good budgets. Uh, very important bond issue we can talk about. Probably the highlights are the totally different attitude for the time that Harold was mayor toward equity and race, affordable housing, ethics, uh, a total reduction in patronage. We talk about a, a number of these things. Um, the bond issue was a real big one. This was an issue where, remember, Harold faced opposition city council. It's hard for mayor to do a lot with that level of opposition, particularly the racism that kind of blew up in Chicago um, under this, uh, when he became mayor. So the bond issue was Harold's administration. One of the things he did is picked some really talented people, some who made a really big difference, like the Rob Mears um, and the Elizabeth Hollanders and many others. Um, and they had Jackie Grimshaw as a key person there in intergovernmental relations. So uh, a lot of very good people were working with him, but they knew Chicago had so many capital problems. Okay, remember when uh, President Biden recently passed this major infrastructure thing. Similar in Chicago, you can't really deliver for the people if you can't fix certain things, structural things, and you know streets and um, new highways and CTA, whatever it may be. And so the mayor was proposing all this stuff, but they didn't want it to happen because they didn't want to have any successes. Okay, and he fought kind of year after year after that, and finally. Uh, after a couple of years, he was finally able to pass that. And part of what was good about that is it was a terribly important thing we needed. But the other thing was, is the opposite, the opposition tried to always say, well, Harold just wants to do things for his people, implying black. Okay. Uh, and they tried to use all that power in the Northwest side and the Southwest side against Harold Washington. But the bond issue brought goodies or successful programs and stuff to all 50 wards. And that was one of the reasons they fought it so hard, ironically. So gradually he was able to build enough power and influence to pass that. And it was a major step because, for one, he proved that he wasn't just the mayor of, quote, a few people. He was the mayor of everybody. And so it began to began to um, work against the power of Verdoliak and Burke. In fact, even before the 1987 election, Eddie, Eddie Verdoliak quit the Democratic Party. He thought that maybe if he switched to the Republican Party, he and many others could go along. The irony of that is, by the way, that Illinois would probably be a Republican majority right now if that had happened. But one of the ironies of our politics is one of the reasons that didn't happen is because many other Democrats, like powerful Madigan and others, did not want to leave the Democratic Party because they controlled so many of the jobs that they've been getting over the years of patronage. Uh, but Verdoliak jumped away, joined the Republican Party, uh, and and left the city council and put his brother in there instead. So the bond issue is one. I mentioned the equity is that for years and years there's been so much discrimination in Chicago. One of the best examples of that, if you just look at parks 
and you'd look at the beautiful 47th Ward uh, when oh. a guy named Eddie Kelly was has head of the the parks and so forth. And, you know, you mean, it almost like it always looked like they cut the grass every day. And then you go to many of the parks in the south and west side and it looked like they hadn't been touched in weeks or months. So there was so many things. And again, had he had more power, he could have done more. But start dealing with those things. You start demanding those people, even though they're passionate employees, they do the work. They clean up those parks and so forth. So some of those things began to happen. Um, uh, affordable housing. Um, Harold did, did a lot in that front. Uh, one of the things that, of course, I'm proud of, and I uh, never would have passed, of course, without Harold Washington, was the Tenant Landlord Bill of Rights. Uh, never in Chicago's history did tenants really have any power. If uh, Again, plenty of good landlords, but for bad landlords, what that meant is that for now, all of a sudden in 1986, this legislation has passed with Harold's support. Even, uh, and remind me, I want to go into something in a minute about Harold was a progressive mayor, but the city council wasn't. Okay. and But in this particular case, because of the mayor's influence, it was able to be passed. And so it meant now that for the first time, Chicago's majority of tenants, if in fact they had a landlord that would not follow the law, et cetera, they now had new options of what they could. And let me, uh, Jane, do you want me to continue on this or move? Yeah, different? no, I think, I, I, you know, I think this is, this is great. I think one of the really fascinating things is I think there's often a misconception from the public that it's like, you know, oh, why, why can't things just happen more quickly? And I think the sort of explaining how a lot of, especially when we talk about progress, how complicated progress can be, you know, to move things forward in a right direction. So honestly, it's like, it's really incredible that despite all the odds that were really stacked against sort of progress at the time, how much was actually really able to be accomplished in such a short period of time. Yeah, and, and one thing that I was about to mention is that a part of this is a part of this is simply power meaning you've got the votes. Okay. But there was something special about Harold Washington too. I said before Harold Washington was a progressive mayor, but his city council was not. Okay. Uh, we've never had a really progressive city council, period. You know, you might argue we have more of that today, but uh, we don't have a majority of aldermen that are, quote, truly progressive. But what that meant is that a lot of the aldermen that decided to go with Harold, partly because they happen to also be African-American, is that Harold was extremely popular in the black community. People have to understand that at the time. Uh, his, his followers and supporters were extremely enthusiastic. OK, and if you see any of the old videos of Harold and you see what a character he was and, and a good speaker and and tough in ways when he needed to be and and very decent and uh, when he when he needed to be, if you want to use those kind of terms. But um, I, I gave the example of the tenant landlord Bill of Rights, also the first uh, mayor to pass any significant ethics legislation, which he did in 1987. OK. Um, many in our caucus, okay, and now Harold had a majority, many in our caucus did not support either the major ethics legislation that he uh, approved, uh, nor the Tenants Landlord Bill of Rights. But again, this 
this guy had such persuasive ability, okay, and not in in not in the wrong way. Okay, the wrong way was what I described um, years ago with the old machine that you know if you don't do what we want or you don't vote the way we want, we'll mess you up in your ward. Um, and that can mean a lot of things. It would mean an important zoning change you need, we'll block it. You want to approve this new affordable housing thing, we'll block it. Okay. The irony of this is to bring people up to date is, you know, we're talking about 1983 and 86 and so forth. And, and recently, just to have people understand the way politics works, is the new mayor in Chicago had to kick out his floor leader for doing the same thing, okay, in a, a more allegedly progressive group. And I'm not saying the mayor had anything to do with it. Um, but in this case, um, the floor leader and the head of the zoning committee, um, Carlos, had to go because he was basically threatening people in the same way they did back in the 60s and 70s and early 80s. And that is, you better vote the way I want or all of a sudden, the important issues to you and your zoning, zoning issues will not move forward. Uh, and that's kind of a dirty politics that you expect from real hacks. But I'm um, disappointed to see still in 2023, as you said, 36 years later, in some cases still happening. So, again, that persuasive ability of the mayor had a lot to do with some of the progressive things he was able to pass. Well, I think your 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 point to sort of uh, more you know flash forward to more current events and a lot of the same issues. I think, especially in the in the space that you know both of us occupy, um, you a lot longer than me, obviously. But I think that you know I often get asked all the time, like you know why you know the why why are things not changing why are things always the same and i think it's you know that a, a lot of times i flippantly sort of respond oh you know that's just politics where it's like a lot of the in, unless there's sort of larger reforms in the structure in how in how people operate it doesn't really matter sort of what party you are or what position you are because they're you're still operating in a same system of power where it's like it's really about making changes to the fundamental structure and sort of ethics and reform and transparency like those things are the things that are going to really bring about change in the way that's needed because until those things change there's always going to be you know people operating in a similar system of you know how how to get things done and so that's where I think you know to make a plug for the work that that uh you know our organizations do it's like it's it's not always the most glamorous but it's the things that really get change to happen in in a lot of these systems well let's talk about that in, in slightly different ways okay in my view i always like this phrase that i use politics is the art of managing conflict okay um and again, you've got your more traditional ways. I, I would say when when you when we talk about structure, I would suggest we make a distinguishment there between, let's say, national government and local government. Um, so there the structural change of the national government, which is why it's so hard to do things, is we do not have a democratic system. I don't mean Democrats or Republicans. I mean, we don't have a democratic system. The constitution that we had back in the, which was a slavery constitution, back in 1786, et cetera, 
that said, for example, um, that everybody's you know one person, one vote, one man at the vote at that time, by the way. But again, we have a U.S. Senate, which is the most powerful body, made up of 50 senators, but two from each state. And we forget sometimes how that structurally prevents a real democracy, because that means the 39 million people of California who have two senators and the one million plus a little bit people in Montana also have two senators. So if that if if we had like a real democracy would in both the Senate and the House determined by the number of voters, et cetera, we'd have a totally different structure. And some of the kind of stuff we see with the MAGA Republicans would not be possible. They wouldn't have the votes. Uh, just one example structurally at the national level. At the local level, it's a little different. We don't have as many structural issues. We have a lot of political issues. And let's just throw in ethics for a moment, okay? That, you know, it's just kind of a strange word. Let's not use ethics. Let's use accountability, okay? When you have um, a system that encourages corruption and theft, okay, over decades and decades, and, and, and the patterns we talk about, uh, where, where, in fact, a vast majority of the people that worked for city government, county government, park district, CTA, CHA, et cetera, are chosen by politicians as opposed to people looking for the most competent person. When you have that, it doesn't mean there's not good employees because some of those people that I would not I even consider hacks, they may pick good people. But it often creates a situation where there's there's both corruption and so forth. And when you see, that's why I mentioned Burke and um, Vidoliak and then and Madigan's trial coming up. When you see how many people, as Dick Simpson's books have pointed out, more elected officials have been indicted and convicted in Chicago and Cook County than anywhere in the country. The fundamental things are here's where structural change is important. If in fact what many of these aldermen, just folks in aldermen for a moment, have done for decades is they've been allowed because of our, our structure to be like Burke, for example, to pick on Eddie for a minute. All the time while I was his powerful head of the finance committee, he also ran a law firm that was always trying to get business from using his power to do that. I love to tell this story. Um, I was teaching years ago at Mundelein College um, before I was in the city council. Um, and there was a, a woman who was actually working at United Airlines. And so one of my students, and when I was flying out one day, I stopped by there and I saw these um, Ed Burke stationery on her desk. And I said, what's all that? And she says, well, they're, you know, resumes from Ed Burke, you know, people wanting jobs. And I say, what did you, what do you do with them? And she says, what do you think we do with him? He's chairman of the finance committee. Okay. Um, that kind of utter corruption, and that's not even the other stuff that Burke may or may not end up going to jail for, but that's been around a long time. That causes enormous inefficiencies. Okay. It's why black voters by and large have been screwed. That's why too many Latino voters live in districts where uh, there's industrial waste and more pollution than there should be. Um, so that corruption means that many of the people are supposed to be fixing the streets, mowing the grass in the parks, fixing the swings, whatever it may be, are not doing their job. 
or the CTA, which is incredibly important in modern society if we want to get away with everybody drive your car and destroy the planet. We need our trains and our CTA and other so forth to work properly. But when you have so much of that, what I call old machine or old politics or the patronage, and not necessarily enforcing those people to do the right thing, because you're more concerned of the votes that they can pull on election day and the positions they can pass than you are about how good a job they do for the public. I think people instinctively know that. But yes, that's been hard to change. One of the best things that changed, and I'll 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 pause there, is one thing under under Lori Lightfoot's administration. She and the city council were able to pass a law that said no longer could the Ed Burks and the Verdoliaks and the others of the world do what they've been doing. That your your fiduciary um, responsibility to the public comes first, which means they passed a law that basically said if you're going to have outside income, we're not going to say you can't. But you can't have outside income if, in fact, you're doing like what Burke was doing. OK, he's representing the public, supposedly, at the same time, he's got all these clients that have a conflict. I mean, like, you know, he his client was Trump and Burke helped, like with Madigan and all the other folks, helped Trump to, to lower his taxes on some of his big property downtown Chicago. When you do that. And you lower his assessments, which leads, in many cases, to lower taxes. It means somebody else has got to eat all that. Okay? And that's part of the problem in Chicago. That's one of the worst of the structural problems in Chicago and Cook. And that's related to the system that Madigan and Burke and others have benefited so much from. Berrios, uh, this whole operation, which I won't get into right now, but meaning, you know, using the assessment process to make a lot of money for the few. Uh, so, yes, um, there are political reasons why things tend to, to be slower than they should. And it's really hard because um, many elected officials all across the state do not want to see the kind of change that most average citizens want. I'll take it back to you, Jane. Yeah, I you know, I think that the, those are all really great points. And I think it's really it, it puts a lot into context both when looking at the past, looking at the present and looking at the future in, you know, sort of things that we should all kind of keep in mind. Um, I'd love to sort of, you know, go go back in, back in time a, a bit, um, back to sort of the Harold Washington days. And, um, you know, we were, we were talking about sort of, uh, you becoming vice mayor, some of the great stuff that happened under his administration. Um, and I guess let's kind of talk a little bit about sort of uh, when he suddenly passed and what what happened then, especially, you know, with you being the his his, his vice mayor. Well, that's uh, two 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 things were going on simultaneously, as as they often are. Um, uh, beneath the scenes was a struggle for power. Okay, and uh, again, as usual, Ed Burke seemed to know about Harold's condition before the vast majority of us, whatever connections he had or whatever, um, maybe through fire or police or somebody, but he he knew before many of us that Harold had had this stroke in his office. Um, and so, uh, beneath that was a struggle for power. Okay. There's going to be a new, a new mayor 
And uh, those people knew they had the votes, so someone like me wasn't going to be mayor. Um, and so that struggle was going on immediately, even before Harold had legally passed away or technically had passed away. Um, and for the much of the public, there was a very legitimate mourning session because he was so popular. Uh, one of the things that I remember, you know, uh, part of my job there as being mayor for that short time was to show the proper respect for Harold Washington, who was a friend and, and I think really deserved it and unfortunately left us too soon. But for example, so his body was put, um, you know, in City Hall and just thousands and thousands of people lined up. And one of the kind of, you know, these sad things that you think about, there were so many people that we had chalk lines around, on, on the sidewalks so people could know, you know, they might be a block and a half away, two blocks away, but they're supposed to follow those chalk lines if they want to get into City Hall and actually go by and um, pass his body. And um, I kind of go out there every day and it was like, I don't remember exactly anymore. It might've been six or seven days before, before the chalk finally wore off. And it was just kind of a really sad moment that the chalk we'd put there immediately was now gone. Um, Harold body, body was no longer in state and, and he was put in the ground. So that was all going on. And even the, the, the massive event that took place, I think, the Sunday after his death on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, uh, that um, at, uh, at U University of Illinois, um, that turned into pretty much a, a political brawl on, let's say, our side, which you might call the more, more progressive side, um, where, you know, the people were trying to figure out that that, that time the battle was the Herald side was lining up with Tim Evans. Remember, Tim Evans was a key player on the 29. He was finance chairman under Harold Washington. Now, of course, the head of the Cook County court system. But uh, Tim, Tim to many, seemed to be the likely successor. And meanwhile, the burke Fidoliak gang was struggling hard. Uh, I think one of them, one of the white people wanted to be the mayor, but I think they realized they didn't have the votes. Um, and in this case now, they were able to gather a number of votes of African-Americans who had supported Harold, but were still a little more traditional in their politics. Uh, they knew they could get some of those if they supported a black individual. So that was all going on at the same time. And I was just mostly doing ceremonial things. It was kind of funny. Um, you know, I think, remember I said, he passed away on, on the day before Thanksgiving on Thursday, we had a press conference. And I do remember one of my old friend reporters, Dick Kay, demanding to know why I had had a secret swearing in ceremony um, at that big press conference on Thanksgiving day. And I remember saying to, to Dick and the rest of the press, and there was, you know, a massive amount of press at that time saying, Hey, you know, this is not a thrilling thing. Harold was, was my friend. So I'm taking, taking this office only because he's passed away. And so I wanted a very private thing. Well, what kind of idiot would have a big ceremony, you know, of being in, inducted as the mayor right after your friend passes away? So I just had a really small thing with my family. But <laughs> I just got a kick out of the press, kind of demanding to know why that was secret. Um, but anyway, yeah, so that's all that stuff. Wild. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it was a, a fascinating time. Um, 
more, more unfortunately, um, there was a lot of good um, grieving for Harold and looking at what he's done. And some of the videos that people had were just great. But most of what I had to deal with was this kind of the crazy politics um, and all the machinations politically. One thing that I don't think the public knows about, that I might have mentioned to you before, Jane, is that you no, know, both sides were struggling. Our side was struggling to um, to hopefully have someone who had been, um, you know, more progressive um, as an ex-mayor. And one of the things that happened in some insiders, who I can't even tell you all the names, but people were trying to have a sit-down discussion because once it um, became apparent that one of the, the, the Verdoliak Burke side, well, Verdoliak was now gone, but Burke and others ha, were looking at, at Sawyer, Eugene Sawyer, who had been allied with Harold uh, and actually an old friend and uh, was one of the original 21, that Sawyer, what might be the choice reluctantly of the, uh, the Burke side, and so there was an attempt to see if we could get meetings between Burke and Evans to cool heads, stop some of the craziness, et cetera, and maybe talk about it themselves. And I know I was asked by Intergovernment Affairs and some other people to try and meet with each of them. Ironically, at that time, Sawyer seemed interested in at least that kind of conversation. Um, I couldn't quite convince Tim Evans to move in that direction. Um, Tim thought he had a shot. I think many others didn't think he he really did. So at this time, again, they still had the votes. Uh, and so when it came down four o'clock, I, I referred to that that the evening and went to four four in the morning when Gene Sawyer was selected the next mayor. I refer to that as the 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 world's longest political slumber party because um, it went so late in the evening. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know at this point whether things could have been different or not. Um, and but and let me put my more political hat back on for a moment. Is and again, I like Gene Sawyer. A lot of people did, but Burke and the others knew Sawyer was someone they could influence a great deal. Um, and just to go at one step further on this to show you what I mean by that, many of you who've seen pictures were alive at the time. Remember Dick Mel standing on the desk and he became kind of world famous for that. And his picture went around the world. He's still on the desk complaining that I wasn't calling on him or some of the others. And just briefly on that, uh, one is that I, we knew they had the votes. But if you're having this major political battle, my judgment, right or wrong, was that if I called on one of them, even if the meeting had just begun, they would have moved to end debate. They had the votes. There'd been no discussion whatsoever about mayor. And I felt that was wrong. Let the people who want to support Tim Evans talk. Do we want to support Eugene Sawyer talk? So I held off that uh, for a while. And that's one of the reasons that Burke and others and Mel, in this case, got on the desk. But the other thing behind the scenes that people don't often realize, this goes back to the power of politics. Was Dick Mel just get on the desk for the hell of it? No, Dick Mel and the others knew, because Dick Mel and the uh, the old timers want to call it that, what they wanted were all these jobs and stuff. Remember, I was vice mayor. They wanted that post. Um, Larry Bloom at the time was head of the finance committee. They wanted, they wanted all those committees back. They wanted all that power, okay? 
Um, and so I'm, I'm suggesting to you, my view, is that what Dick Mel was doing? And just to finish that story, that Gene Sawyer held on, okay? They wanted to kick all of us out because remember, um, while Sawyer became mayor, everything else stayed the same. Technically, I was still vice mayor. Uh, Larry Bloom was still finance chair, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what they really wanted because that's the way they'd grown up. That means if you get a chairmanship, often you can hire people uh, and the old guard would hire their friends. Um, so it wasn't until about March, I believe, that the first step was made. And the same day that I introduced legislation to control a uh, kind of very, um, I think, kind of dishonest political fund that Alderman had, I demanded that those uh, funds be made public, and they kicked me out as vice mayor. So I was the first to go, which is what the behind-the-scenes stuff wanted. Then gradually, others got kicked out, and they are able to convince Sawyer to kind of, I want to say, return to the old days. Uh, and, of course, uh, that's a whole other story, which uh, we won't get into today, about you know, the challenges Gene Sawyer had. But, again, they they used Sawyer, and then they dumped him because their plan was to bring Young Daly in anyway. Um, so, uh, two years later, when there was a special election, those same people basically supported, not all of them, most of them supported Young Daly over Sawyer, uh, and that was the end of it. Well, thank you so much, David. This was such an interesting, not, not really history lesson, but more just sort of a living, breathing discussion about past present future kind of all combined into one and very timely around sort of uh this anniversary that is incredibly important uh for a lot of people but especially just the city of chicago as a whole and i think there's a lot people can learn from it uh as we kind of wrap up this this episode are there any kind of last thoughts on harold washington on this time that you would like people to sort of have as, as a takeaway or any, any things about Harold in particular, you, you, you want people to know that people might not know. Okay. Well, I, let me just kind of wrap it up, hopefully pretty quickly that I'm connecting at least um, what I think is important, the brilliance and the talent of Harold Washington with understanding politics. Politics is the art of managing conflict and to understand it properly, you need to understand these politics to see how how you define success, particularly with such significant opposition. But let me end it with a story, because Harold was such a personable guy. So um, this is, a, I don't know, a couple of years before he passed away. I uh, had a book in my hand, and I was uh, uh, we, we were talking about something, and he saw this book, and I said, and he said, well, what you reading? Because he was a voracious reader, Harold was, and I said, uh, about my favorite mayor. Uh, this was way back in the 1890s, and um, he was reform mayor way back ahead of his time. And Harold said, oh, what do you mean your favorite mayor? Give me that book. Anyway, so Harold takes the book, and despite all he had to do, I swear it was only a couple of days later, we're at some event together, and he says, okay, here's your book back. Um, and he said, and, and, and you have to understand, Harold, his twinkly eyes, and he said, now, once again, who's your favorite mayor? And I said, well, you're my favorite mayor, but this guy is my second favorite. And he laughed. And um, But the point was he he was extremely personable, very smart, 
and very well read. Um, and, and that's why it's so hard to watch people like us, to watch Harold have to go through the horrible stuff that he faced from the Verdoliacs and the Bur Burks and others. I'm not saying they didn't have a legitimate point now and then, but so much of the racial and the, again, these tactics and so forth. So I think it's important we remember someone who unfortunately could have shaped a very different world and it would have been a much more positive outlook for Chicago, I think, had he lived longer. Um, but I, I'm glad that there's, you know, there's a Harold Washington Legacy Committee that is always doing things like just this past week, they went to um, um, the cemetery to kind of honor him there and they have a lot of good videos and stuff. Um, so I think it's important to understand uh, how talented this was and uh, how how much he did at that time, despite what some people saw as chaos. That's really beautiful. And, you know, I I just love hearing stories of, of people being people and people being, you know, delightful to be around and stuff. So that that's a very heartwarming story about Harold. I do have to say, you know, I'm a new mother-ish, you know, I have a seven-month-old at home and I am constantly schlepping him around to any sort of politics or meetings. Like, you know, more people want to see my baby than they want to see me at this point. <laughs> I think. But um I do I do want to ask you about a story also, you know, uh with regards to your children. So I have heard that you had to delay your first child's birth because of a budget vote. And I think that this will be a great kind of little story to end on for this episode. Okay. So I'd love to learn more. Yeah, we, we old politicians have lots of stories. So the scene was, it is, it is December 31st, 1984. Okay. This is when the Vidoliak Burke Group was still in power. And what they were trying to do, usually the budget is passed in November at some point, early December, uh, but legally it has to be done by the end of the year. So they were kind of pulling a, a MAGA thing, you know, like the Republicans always try and do see is to uh, let us have no budget or blah, blah, blah. And so they were taking it down to try and get as much as possible in concessions from the Herald. So uh, my wife is very, very pregnant. Um, about to deliver at any moment, and I'm still downtown on New Year's Eve of 1984. And I'm saying, Harold, I, I got to go. You know, they, the doctors are saying it's coming soon. They said, well, wait a little longer, wait a little longer. We got to make sure we get the votes. So I don't know what time it was. I'm guessing, you know, 9.30 at night on New Year's Eve. Uh, they finally call me and say, it's okay. We got the votes. You can go. Because remember, when it's that close like that, they couldn't afford to lose a vote. But they had enough votes. So I was allowed to leave and I get back home. We rushed to the hospital uh, and then um, they said she wasn't quite ready. So technically, our firstborn son, Jeffrey, was um, uh, the first to arrive in 85. In fact, he uh, was the first to be born in Evanston. Uh, and so we got a year's uh, worth of diapers or something like that for being the firstborn. But yeah, it was kind of chaos there where I'm feeling like a bad father, but I've got to make sure we have the votes. Um, yeah, that was the good old days, although they were pretty rough at that time. But it's fun to look back at some of those stories. I mean, it just it, it builds part of the legend of, of your of your child. And, you know, the the story, unfortunately, it's like politics doesn't 
stop for people or holidays or, you know, other things, politics keeps going on. So, you know, I, I think it's a, a, a really hilarious story and I'm glad you were <laughs> able to make it in time to be able to actually enjoy it. <laughs> and you got the votes on the budget. Right. Well, thanks, Jane. And thanks for doing this and keep up your good work with legal and voters and, of course, the work you do for Good Government Illinois. Thank you so much, David. This was this was really great. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there will be more parts to this because there's so much more for us to talk about. Um, so I'm so glad we were able to do that. Um, I think on this note, I will also just like to sort of remind our viewers of the really important work that both of the organizations do. So, um, you know, League of Women Voters has been around for over 100 years working in the, in the space of empowering voters and defending democracy. Uh, we're a nonpartisan grassroots organization working to protect and expand voting rights and ensure everyone is represented in our democracy. We empower voters and defend democracy through advocacy and education. The League of Women Voters of Chicago encourages informed and active participation in government while influencing public policy. We never endorse or oppose political parties or candidates, but we are political. And just a little bit about Good Government Illinois. Good Government Illinois is committed to protecting democracy, eliminating voter suppression, promoting pro equity, anti-racist government practices, expanding government efficiencies, rooting out corruption, strengthening ethics reforms, and electing strong progressives in state and local government. I think both organizations um, are really doing a lot of great work and in, in the space of watching and observing what's happening in government right now. And I feel so honored to not only be able to work with League of Women Voters of Chicago, but also work very closely with David and Good Government Illinois. And I look forward to more future collaborations. So on that note, we will end this episode of Politics 101. And I hope everyone has a, a great rest of their holiday season.